This is America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C., an initiative of the U.S.-based think tank, the International Leaders Summit, in partnership with Lancer Broadcasting and the Pledge Radio in Michigan. I am Joel Sami, your co-host, joined by Natasha Sardoch, economist and co-founder of the International Leaders Summit think tank. America's Roundtable brings together leading voices from business, government, media, and the public policy arena. Thank you for joining us on America's Roundtable. This weekend, we are delighted to have Harmit Dillon join us. Harmit Dillon is a nationally recognized lawyer and known as a passionate advocate for individual, corporate, and institutional clients across numerous industries and walks of life. As partner at Dillon Law Group based in San Francisco, California, Harmit Dillon's focus is in commercial litigation, employment law, First Amendment rights, and election law matters. Uh, admitted to practice law in New York and California, she has been a solicitor of the Supreme Court of England and Wales. Harmit Dillon is also the founder of the Center for American Liberty. She is co-chair of the Republican National Lawyers Association and member of the Trump 2020 Advisory Council. She's a great champion of the First Amendment. Many of our listeners may recognize Harmit's voice as she has appeared on national media and programs including Fox News. We would like to clearly communicate the following disclaimer. Harmit Dillon is not providing any legal advice to our listening audience. Harmit Dillon, we extend to you a warm welcome to America's Roundtable radio program. Welcome, Harmit. Thank you. Happy to be here, Joel and Natasha. Well, Hermit, a killing of George Floyd, an African-American man, sparked peaceful, legitimate protests that wanted to address legitimate grievances of a black man dying while in Minneapolis police custody. The protests have been hijacked by violent extremist elements. One of the groups that have been mentioned is Antifa, which hijacked peaceful protests. We are also witnessing criminals exploiting these demonstrations to steal. They are breaking into stores and looting. There is obvious escalation of violence, and we need to address these layers individually. Hermit, do you see any obstacles, and what are your suggestions for President Trump to succeed in designating Antifa as a domestic terrorist organization to make them accountable for their actions? Well, I think the president has done one of the things that he can do. The executive order that was issued uh, recognizes Antifa's role here in the United States. Now, it's getting panned by the left-wing media because they point to a federal statute regarding designation of terrorist organizations that refers to foreign terrorist organizations. So what I would say to that is that Antifa, in fact, is a foreign terrorist organization, and the president can certainly go that route and pursue that designation as well. But for now, he doesn't need that. Um, He is in charge of law enforcement of the United States, and he can direct the law enforcement authorities uh, to focus their efforts on a particular area of emphasis, which in this case would include these criminal terrorist elements in the United States that are hijacking the legitimate grief of most Americans I know over this unwarranted killing of Mr. Floyd and then deploying that for civil unrest for their own political purposes to destabilize our government. And so I think this is really important, and it's really important for people to understand the complexity of this. I think you've stated it well, Natasha. But what I think is even more important, if you look back and look at Antifa, which I've been studying for some time now, ever since our client Andy Noe was assaulted last year in Portland, is that 
these are highly organized groups, and they're spread out throughout the United States. And they don't have necessarily a top-down structure. They have a sort of horizontal structure of command and control, but they have common goals of um, exploiting situations to create chaos. And they rally their young, ill-educated, and shiftless uh, supporters into cells on the guise of opposing fascism, hence the name Antifa, anti-fascist opposing so-called white supremacy. But you and I both know, and probably most of the listeners, that white supremacy is not a problem in this country on the scale as Antifa and liberal um, anarchy type movements are. I you know, have hardly in my life ever met somebody, even living in the deep south of rural North Carolina, who uh, today would espouse those white supremacy views. But uh, what, what is very common is this European-style black bloc Violence. We saw it in the Occupy Wall Street movement a few years ago. We've seen it uh, try to hijack the Black Lives Matters movement that started uh, more recently. And now today with this situation, what I believe is that they were laying in wait for some type of a civil injustice to occur like happened to George Floyd and then exploited that and then, frankly, mobilized and, and used grieving communities and also opportunists to do their dirty work, the looting and so forth. So it's a complex situation, and we can attack part of it right away by attacking the criminal elements of it. As for the other elements, I believe that they were accelerated by the uh, general misery of, of most Americans who are out of jobs, who may not be uh, eligible for unemployment at this point, and who don't see a hope for the rest of the year, at least, in terms of getting back into a prosperous and, and upwardly mobile uh, place in life. That has been, I think, underestimated by Democrat governors and Democrat mayors throughout the United States. And I think that they just got a big wake-up call this week. As you briefly mentioned, Hermit, uh, you represented a Portland journalist who was brutally attacked by Antifa members in June last year, actually just a year ago. Uh, could you mm -hmm. kindly share with us about that outrageous incident that was underreported in the mainstream media and any updates that you may have with the police going after perpetrators of the June 19 incident? Sure, absolutely. Well, what happened with uh, our client Andy No, NGO, who is a journalist who reports on Antifa and also on other, um, you know, interesting subcultures and movements in America, is that he had reported on them in a couple of incidents. There was a May Day, May 1 incident last year where there was a march by some conservative group called Patriot Prayer in Portland. And he was reporting on that, videotaping it, and was viciously assaulted in the face with some bear mace in that incident. And uh, so then they began targeting him for future incidents, and I think we believe circulating his photograph and other information. So on that second event uh, a month later, he was uh, targeted by Antifa during another march and protest and uh, viciously assaulted by them. He had uh, liquid thrown in his face. He was maced. He was uh, punched with uh, tactical gloves. He was uh, had to be taken to the emergency room and hospitalized overnight with a with a after an MRI with a with a hemorrhage in his brain. And it took him several months to recover from that and recover his um, speech and his confidence uh, after that incident. So we reported the names of the assailants because you know through videotape we were able to identify several people to the Portland authorities. We also reported it to the United States attorney and the federal law enforcement officer in Portland. And we have followed up with um, 
the local uh, police authorities and the prosecutors at least two dozen times in Portland now over the last few months, and they've refused to respond to us. And I think it was only last month or maybe in late April when a extremely liberal uh, prosecutor was elected in Portland as a district attorney, um, you know, and then sort of more of an Antifa sympathizer probably if you had to uh, grill him than the other way. So we've uh, pr- pretty much given up any hope of any law enforcement taking action, unless, of course, the federal government decides to step in at this point with this new direction from the president and order that this matter be taken seriously. So to be clear, this is not just an assault. This is an organized criminal gang assaulting a journalist for the specific purpose of interfering with his First Amendment activities. Mm-hmm. It's a very serious crime to intimidate journalists, and it's not just my client. Atifa has done this to other journalists who are shedding a light on their criminal activities. So I think it's very serious. It should be a high priority for federal law enforcement when, as, as in Portland, states refuse to take action. And, uh, you know, now with the president's order, I hope that will happen. We may, of course, take some civil action in the immediate future since we have identified several of the assailants. It is disappointing to hear that law enforcement authorities are not responding in this case. Uh, From your research, uh, do you know perhaps how they are funded? How is Antifa funded? So, you know, they aren't exactly on a storefront with a bank account that we could easily find. However, I would um, say that For one thing, you see a number of celebrities uh, who, in the recent violence, have crowdfunded bail for these criminals. Mm. Um, Now, I want to be clear, there are some legitimate uh, Black Lives Matter protesters who may have been swept up in the arrest, but from what I can see, the majority of the people arrested are people committing mayhem and violence and, uh, and, and criminal actions. They raise millions from gullible white liberals and other dupes who think they're supporting legitimate movements and who are motivated by the so-called opposition to uh, right-wingers, which is not true. It's that's a cover for what they really want to do, which is destabilize our whole society. I mean, Portland, for example, is not exactly a right-wing stronghold, and yet uh, that's where they were started, and that's where they um, you know, continue to operate. I understand that, you know, then, so, so there are a lot of splinter groups also, and there are other various allies. I've come up against one uh, Antifa fellow traveler named Yvette Fularka in Berkeley, California, um, who has uh, made false allegations against clients of mine, who has attacked police officers in a protest in Sacramento. What's interesting about that lady is that she's part of a group called By Any Means Necessary, which is a uh, you know Malcolm X slogan. And they have lawyers who travel around the country to defend them from uh, criminal prosecution, to defend them in civil lawsuits. Somebody is obviously paying the bills of those lawyers. Um, I think they work for certain nonprofits. They're funded by somebody. Uh, so I would not want to speculate, but I would say that any journalist who wants to sort of dig in and figure out what's going on could really uh, probably dig into that and have a field day figuring out which legitimate business people, foundations, philanthropists, donors are enabling criminal terrorism in our country. On another note, um, on May 28, President Trump signed an executive order to protect and uphold the free speech and rights of the American people through preventing online censorship. Executive order is calling for new regulations under Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act to remove liability shield to social media companies which engage in censoring or any political conduct. 
Uh, currently, as President Trump said, social media giants like Twitter receive an unprecedented liability shield based on the theory that they're a neutral platform. However, once they engage in suppressing, editing, blacklisting, shadowing, or banning content, they cease to be neutral. They take on editorial decisions. President Trump also mentioned Google and Facebook as powerful social media monopolies. Hermit, as the First Amendment lawyer, please kindly share your thoughts about preventing online censorship and upholding the freedom of speech. Yes, I think it's a very complicated issue. Now, uh, Communications Decency Act 230 was a law that was passed uh, over 20 years ago when the Internet was very new, when people were getting their Internet access through dial-up services like America Online. There was no Google. There was no Facebook. There was no Twitter. There was no social media at all. There wasn't even a title of what is social media. And so, um, you know, it was in a different era. And in that different era, there was a law that was passed to help this new industry and make sure that uh, companies were not shut down because their users posted illegal content such as pornography, violence, defamation, etc. Um, and the way the statute was drafted, it allowed a communications provider to take down information that was defamatory, illegal, violent, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But it also said a category called otherwise objectionable. Now, these extremely successful big tech companies have hidden behind that liability shield and made themselves into trillion-dollar corporations by using this otherwise objectionable label to take down any information they don't like, and all of these companies are run by, um, you know, liberal ideologues, and, and censor. But it's, on the other hand, they promise to third parties, they promise to consumers, they promise to you and me that they are neutral, that they allow all kinds of viewpoints and speech, that they are fair and open, that they have terms of service that each of us sign as a contract between the user and the platform that are true, that we can rely on. But instead, what happens is that um, they're able to get off the hook. So I've sued, for example, uh, for a young lady who is a feminist from Canada who was in a online back and forth with a transgender activist named Jessica Yanov. And Jessica is a man transitioning to woman who likes to hang out in girls' locker rooms and make, you know, un inappropriate comments to them and prey on them online, in my opinion. Hmm. And Ms. Yanov, uh, you know, um, was criticized by my client, Megan Murphy, and then this lady, um, Megan Murphy, uh, referred to her as him. And she was immediately uh, removed from Twitter without notice, wow. without uh, in violation of Twitter's own rules. Twitter's own rules at the time did not make so-called misgendering a a uh, offense that could get you removed. And so they just decided to change the rules retroactively in violation of their own contract. We went to court to sue them on their own contract, and we lost at the trial court level because the court said they can do whatever they want. Well, these would be the only category of companies in America that can do whatever they want. These rules don't apply to, to newspapers can't do whatever they want. Banks can't do whatever they want. People who manufacture widgets can't do whatever they want. They can't lie to the public. They can't breach their own contracts. They can't breach the public trust. But, but yet these companies do. So I would welcome some legislative reform that would fix that and get rid of that catch-all phrase of Communications Decency Act 230. But even before that... What the government can do, and the president has asked the Federal Trade Commission 
uh, to do is to craft regulations that carefully define what that language means. And that is within the purview of the federal government and within the purview of the president. He can, you know, sort of ha have agencies that are charged with interpreting and applying these laws uh, give guidance on that. So I think that's the first thing that's going to happen that's really important. But, um, you know, overall, what I would really like to see these companies do is reform themselves. They seem unwilling to do that. So mm -hmm. one of the things the president did was cut the spending right. you know, and, and cut the advertising. That, I think, is very well within the president's purview. Um, if, I were, if I were queen, I'd probably do a few more things uh, in mm -hmm. this regard. But I understand <laughs> that there are people of two different minds in the White House about this. There are, frankly, some people uh, in the administration, unfortunately, who... Um, you know, are more concerned about what they're going to do after they leave the administration. And, mm -hmm. and you know, frankly, the big uh, tech companies are, are very well-paying employers. And I think quite a few people are pulling their punches because they would like to be on the good books of these big tech companies, which is really unfortunate. Which is revolving doors, right? Yeah. Exactly right. Mm. Harmit, as a member of the Trump Team 2020 Advisory Council, what would you communicate as key accomplishments and policies implemented by the Trump administration, and why should voters consider re-electing President Trump for another four-year term? I would give you, uh, you know, some of the same answers as I would have in 2016 and some new ones. But let's talk about the new ones first. I think mm -hmm. the president's record prior to this COVID, Chinese-inflicted COVID crisis, was really uh, outstanding. The, the record low unemployment across every demographic sector in America, particularly more disadvantaged uh, historically uh, American workforce um, sectors, and uh, economic growth that was tremendous. Uh, America first foreign policy, uh, renegotiated trade agreements with some of our trading partners who have taken advantage of us in the past, including China, uh, renegotiation of the NAFTA, um, trade agreements um, and, you know, d decrease in regulations across the board around the country. And, uh, you know, I think the, w the work that the administration has done in the Department of Education to bring due process back and be really the civil rights party for people who are accused in those proceedings has been really important. Um, some of the things that uh, I think were obvious from the beginning and, and remain even more so today is, uh, is judges. If you were only picking one issue that was important to you as a conservative, you would say it's important to appoint and elect more judges. Now, um, I have been fighting COVID civil rights uh, issues over the recent two and a half months now. And what has become depressingly clear to me is that although the administration and, of course, you know, president can only appoint people, he can't force Senate to have hearings on them. So... While the president has appointed some good people, they've really focused only on the courts of appeals. And what that means is in a place like California and other liberal states where the worst civil rights violations have occurred, all of the judges hearing those civil rights violations are recent appointees, and they're more likely than not in those jurisdictions to be Democrats because of our annoying blue slip process that allows blue state senators to control who gets appointed. So that means that if I had gone into court with the same claims in different states, I would have won them. But in California, because we don't have Trump-appointed judges for the most part, we are left with very bad decisions at the trial court level, and then we have to go to the Court of Appeals to fix those, which means that people have not been able to pray like they should have, protest like they should have, open their businesses like they should have, go to the beach like they should be able to do in the first instance. So that's been really disappointing, and that's a job that needs to be done in the second term of this administration is appoint district court judges and keep appointing the other judges. And so that is, I think, a, a really good reason. And, and to, to really bring it home, 
even with Republican judges who are not appointed by our president, you get disappointing rulings. So just this past week on, on, on Friday night, we had a case involving um, the right to worship in Southern California, and I'm one of the lawyers in that case. It reached the United States Supreme Court on an emergency injunction, and uh, the, the court denied it five to four. But uh, Justice Roberts, Chief Justice Roberts, the chief justice issued a concurring opinion that was frankly wrong on the jurisprudence of the right to worship under the First Amendment. And he basically likened the right to worship to the right to go to a football game or a uh, entertainment venue where, you know, people, the same people are allowed to go to a Costco or a Walmart and hang out as long as they want and, you know, do whatever there. They're not allowed to go to a church. This is ridiculous. It's not consistent with constitutional uh, doctrine. And we, we need more Supreme Court justices there. Justice Kavanaugh, appointed by our president, uh, gave a dissenting um, uh, opinion to that decision five to four, and his analysis of the law was correct. And so that just shows me that we have work left to do here, a lot of work left to do, and I really want to see the president conclude that part of his legacy, which has been a great start in the first four years. We greatly appreciate your leadership and courage in defending the First Amendment of the United States Constitution, which protects freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of assembly, freedom of the press, and right to petition the government. It has been a very busy period of time for you, with a number of high-profile cases that you have taken recently, and mentioned some of them right now. Do you observe an increase in abuses and erosion of the First Amendment right in recent years? Yes, of course. Um, and this is from so many different reasons, and it's like too long to get into here, but it has been judges of both political party appointments who have, since we passed the federal civil rights statutes in the 1960s that established the right of citizens to sue the suing federal court if a state limits their rights, including the First Amendment and any of the Bill of Rights, Fourth Amendment, Fifth Amendment, you know, even uh, other amendments, uh, Judges have created this doctrine called qualified immunity. Qualified immunity is a made-up doctrine that basically protects government workers, police, prosecutors, governors, mayors, um, well, not mayors so much, but you know, other officials uh, for violating civil rights, be it the First Amendment, Fifth Amendment, Second Amendment, or any amendment, or other constitutional considerations. That needs to be eliminated. And so far, the only um, justice at the Supreme Court who has really taken a leadership position on this has been Justice Thomas, who's now amongst the older justices. So we need a new generation of judges and or an amendment to the federal civil rights statutes. And this is something, by the way, that both liberal and conservative civil rights attorneys agree with. Mm -hmm. But the doctrine of qualified immunity has really been damaging to the rights of American citizens to pursue their rights in federal court. So I'd like to see that stripped away and, and go back to the basics. Um, and then otherwise, college students today in America are being taught by these Marxist professors. And even college students who are supposedly young and idealistic, they're in favor of censorship. They are intolerant of views that they don't accept. And I think I go back to social media. People have become very siloed. They have little switches on their little interaction tools where they can block and limit voices they don't agree with. And then all they hear all day in their little silos is voices they agree with, and then they get very triggered and very upset, and they're taught in college to be very entitled about their right to not hear viewpoints that they disagree with. Wow. And so this is very corrosive to our civil society, and I think social media plays a large role. And boy, by the way, during this last three months of being locked down, 
we've been forced to rely on social media. And so we've increasingly become siloed. We're sitting in our homes. We're not interacting with other human beings. We don't hear other voices. This is really bad. So I think we need to get back to basics and hear each other, uh, agree or disagree, and um, you know, start to evolve and find common ground. Harmed Dillon, it's great to have you join us on America's Roundtable. Harmed Dillon is partner at Dillon Law Group based in San Francisco, California. Uh, she is also the co-founder of the Center for American Liberty, co-chair of the Republican National Lawyers Association, and member of the Trump 2020 Advisory Council, and a great champion of the First Amendment. Thank you so much, Harmed, for your time today. Thank you. I am Jolan Ansami, your co-host, joined by Natasha Sertorch, economist and co-founder of the International Leaders Summit. Thank you for joining us on America's Roundtable. Visit our website, iLeadersSummit.org. Follow us on Twitter, iLeadersSummit and America's RT. On Facebook, International Leaders Summit and America's Roundtable. Thank you for joining us on America's Roundtable.